You're listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get started with this week's episode, it was connected to us by another guest. And, of course, a lot of symmetry with me because, well, he's from the Baltimore area. We'll get to that coming up in just a moment. Uh, continue, guys, to please leave the Apple reviews. I keep getting notifications that you guys are doing it, so thank you so much. But leaving more Apple reviews will allow us to grow the podcast and get in front of more people and continue to tell these stories to all of America and worldwide, uh, which is a big part of why we do what we do. We've got a lot of listeners overseas, military folks and otherwise, and um, Apple will help us get this podcast in front of all those people. Just leave a five-star rating and a short view. Tell us why you love the show. Uh, We certainly appreciate it, and it will help us out along the way. Speaking of helping out, you can help out Veterans Charities Anywhere in America, just from your own couch. How do you do that? Well, you go to our website, hazardground.com, and you click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab, and then you do all your normal Amazon shopping. It'll redirect right to Amazon. You can do all your normal Amazon shopping, and we get a percentage of what you guys spend. Then we'll donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground. It's just an easy way for you guys uh, to chip in and, and donate to veterans' charities Uh, We vet all the charities that we send them to, so uh, you know that it's going to someplace reputable. But like I said, you guys go to hazardground.com. It'll redirect you to Amazon. Same thing on your smartphone. Saves all your credit card information. Really user-friendly. So don't forget to do that first if you're shopping on Amazon, hazardground.com. Follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at hazardground, at hazardgroundpodcast. And subscribe and like our YouTube channel as well. Also, download the Killcliff TV app because I own our YouTube channel and Killcliff TV app. You can watch all of the Hazard Ground episodes and see our guests up close and up close and personal. And don't forget to go to KillCliff.com for all of your clean energy drinks. KillCliff.com. They have CBD products. I use their Ignite and their Recover, some of the best energy drinks out there. Again, clean energy, none of the sugar, none of the crash, none of that. Uh, and founded by a former Navy SEAL. So you know it's a great company um, that is going to take care of you. Again, KillCliff.com for all of your clean energy drinks. All right, let's welcome in this week's guest who was referred to us uh, by a guest a few weeks back or a few months back, rather, Dario DiPatista, um, who joined the show. He's a re- former Army Staff Sergeant, nearly six years in the Army, two combat deployments to Iraq as a combat engineer, and he's currently now the Director of Veterans and Military Student Services at the University of Baltimore. He is Josiah Guthlin joining us here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Josiah, welcome, man, and thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Mark. It's my pleasure to be here. Uh, look, uh, you came very highly recommended. Dario and I, as, as Baltimoreans, clicked well, so uh, I know that uh, that you and I will get along the same. Baltimore, as we were talking before we recorded, sort of like my second home, went to college there, lived there for for about 10 years. So, um, yeah, I, I, those are my old stomping grounds. I, I, I kind of used to run that city, but not really. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, it is Baltimore. Everybody knows each other. That is one true. way or another. Especially the veteran community in Baltimore, it's even smaller, and you just run into the same people no matter where you're going in the city. Yeah, and if you drop my name anywhere around the Maryland National Guard, you might get a negative response. But that's mostly my fault, not yours. Okay, uh, so let's move on from that. Uh, your story very interesting, and I'm curious to know 
Um, and we'll get to this down the road, but you know, the, the idea of helping veterans get back to school is something that we always sort of gloss over, right? Like it's one of those fringe benefits that we hear about, oh, just, you know, the army will pay for your education, military will pay for your education, go back to school, get your degree, this, that, and the other. But there's a lot more intricacies of it in your line of work and in doing it. So we'll get to that coming up here uh, as we go along. But start back at the beginning. Uh, how and why did you end up in the Army? So I joined the Army because I am defiant, uh, and I didn't want to join the Air Force because my father was uh, active duty in the Air Force uh, for 20 years. He actually retired while I was active duty in the Army. So we overlapped for about three years, which I thought was really cool. He actually got his com- he got commissioned when I was just a few weeks old, there's a picture of oh, wow. my mother holding me at the ceremony and I'm just a wee little fella and my dad getting his commission back in 1985. So that tells you how old I am. Um, so we were in the air force. We moved around. Um, I literally lived nowhere longer than three years in my entire life until I got out of the army uh, about 13 years ago. And so we just moved around all the time. Uh, so I just grew up around the military community. I kind of just knew about those core values, regardless of which branch you're in the military. And then on September 11th, 2001, I was a junior in high school. And uh, my father was still being active duty. He was stationed at Peterson Air Force Base at the time. Uh, it was right where NORAD is. And mm-hmm. when the attacks happened, he got called on base with his go bag. And we thought for sure my dad, who at the time was a a nurse in the Air Force, he was a major, was going to be flying somewhere that night. Luckily, he didn't have to go anywhere that evening. But like that moment in time was seared into my brain as a junior in high school, a very influential time of your life. You're, you're like becoming who you are during that time period. And when that happened, I was like, I'm going to fight bad guys. I'm going to take my dad's lead. I'm going to join the military just like he did. But I'm going to do something where I can be a little more hands on with the enemy. And so it was on that d- days or weeks that followed that I looked at joining the Marine Corps. I looked at joining the Navy. I looked at joining the Army. And the Army recruiter really knew how to talk to like a 16, 17-year-old Josiah because he's like, hey, um, you can do this thing where you like to shoot machine guns and blow stuff up and like drive big things. And he was talking about being a combat engineer. And I was like, I like fireworks. I'm sure it's the same. That's like it's the same. It's just big fireworks. And so – um, after my junior year and going into my senior, I had pretty much made the decision. I was going to join the army since I was kind of a rebel rebel, like really without a clause. Cause my dad's a major in the air force. I'm a middle-class kid living in Colorado Springs. Right. I was like, I'm going to do this. My parents were like, you know, I think it's not the worst decision for you. So they supported me even as a 17 year old signed up in May, right after graduating from high school. Um, and it was sent to, Fort Leonard Wood in November of 2003 with basic training in the middle of the winter, which in Missouri, which was horrible and amazing at the same time. Yeah. uh, Fort Leonard Wood is uh, like in the bottom five posts in all of the army. Uh, It really is lost in the woods. That's that's what we call it. Um, You know, I mean, when you, uh, after the nine 11 tax, how much, how many conversations did you have with your parents about, uh, joining the military at that point in time? You know, it was it was not something, just the shock of the nation. If you're old enough to remember that time frame and what was going on, um, it was such a shock to the nation to be attacked on 
in the continental United States, not even like Pearl Harbor. It's it's like in the United States. We're in Colorado Springs, which had a huge concentration of military in Colorado Springs. You got the Air Force Academies there, Army bases, Air Force, everything's right there. So we were worried about um, attacks happening there in Colorado Springs. And so it wasn't something that I brought up right away um, to my parents because I'm sure my mother, if I would have brought up the days right after 9-11, she would have been against it because she doesn't want to send her oldest boy right. off to war. But for the most part, after things had calmed down a little bit, we kind of knew what was happening. And I talked about joining the military and I really had no drive at that time to go to college. Mm-hmm. They were supportive of that sort of structured environment where I could improve myself as a human and as a person. So um, they were supportive of it pretty much from the get go, except they wanted me to join the Air Force. And I said, I'm not going to salute my dad. No, I never. I end up saluting him a bunch of times because he showed up to my basic training graduation in uniform. Uh, Thanks, Dad. That's a real yeah. jerk move. Not going to lie. Yeah, my drill that's... sergeants had to salute my father. And which means I got smoked so hard in yeah, basic training. That's a, that's, a, that's a bad move on old man's part. Like, I mean, he, yeah. he had to know that he was setting you up for failure. Oh, yeah. He did it. He did it because he thought it would be hilarious, which it was for him. Yeah, like, for him. When right, I was right, sweaty yeah. it's a very one-sided in my joke. class A's yeah. at graduation. Yeah. Very, very one-sided joke. That's uh, that's uh, good. Happy Father's Day, right? Uh, yeah. Thanks, so man. anyway, that, that, that was your Father's Day gift, Dad. Uh, that, that was pretty much it. Yeah. So, uh, all right. So you get mm-hmm. into, the, into the Army. Uh, how much research did you do on the army itself and basic training and everything else? Or were you kind of walking into this blind? I mean, as far as the army, I kind of, I thought I had an idea of what the military was about as a dependent child of an air force officer. Cause you watch platoon, obviously. Well, I don't even think my parents, <laughs> well, maybe I don't even know. I don't know if I, I probably watched that on my first deployment. Um, but I thought I'm like, this is what it's going to be like. Cause I'd seen my father, who worked in hospitals for the most part throughout his entire Air Force career, I saw what his military life was like. And I thought being a you know, combat engineer in the Army would be something very similar to that. And I was very wrong uh, from the very beginning. Now, I knew it was going to be challenging mentally and physically, um, just getting used to that environment. But I, it was not uh, what I was expecting, especially when we were in garrison. It was like, Mm-hmm. You know, you're working nine to five. That's not how it was at all. But that's how I saw it when I was, you know, 17. I saw what my father did. That's how I thought it was going to be. So once basic training finishes, are you at the point where you're just itching to get to combat? I mean, you signed up for all those reasons. You wanted to do more than your dad and everything else. Is that like your sole focus or are you able to sort of compartmentalize and go, okay, I understand there are steps here. There are processes. If it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Or where was your mindset? I was not. I was not um i joined the army specifically to go fight and kill bad guys like that was what i joined the army to do yep so as soon as i got to my first duty station which was in fort benning i was with the third brigade of third infantry division and they're off by themselves at fort benning the rest of third infantry divisions off at fort stewart and the the sergeants and the lieutenants and that i came in the unit i came into had been the tip of the spear coming out of Kuwait for OIF one. So I immediately came into this environment with just the like people that I idolized as far as it went, obviously not perfect humans, but just amazing sergeants that had gone through this combat experience in the original invasion of Iraq. And they just talked about 
their combat experiences all the time. They would reminisce and just being a private sitting on the outside of the conversation, listening to their stories. It would, I would just be filled with jealousy. And I was like, let's go. Like I am ready to go. Now they had only been back from country for a couple of months by the time I got to their unit, but it was not, it did not take long. And we were already ramping up uh, to go to JRTC Mm -hmm. uh, down in Louisiana, do training with these guys. Uh, But I had, Amazing non-commissioned officers, uh, staff sergeants, team leaders that had – my team leader for my whole first deployment had jumped in with the 173rd into Iraq during the initial invasion, into northern Iraq. He had a mustard stain on his jump wings, and you just, you just wow. didn't see that. A guy with a mustard stain on his jump wings, that's a star for people that don't know what I'm talking about. You have a star on your jump wings means you have a combat jump, which has only happened – Happened in Iraq, happened in Grenada, and then like since before that, it's like Vietnam or yep. something. Like you just don't mm-hmm. in today's modern military, or even in two thousand and four, you did not see um, guys with stars on their jump wings. And so these were the people that were my leaders, and they would just tell me their stories, and I was just jealous and biting at the chomp to get out there and uh, see some combat myself. So when do you actually get to go see combat? Because you get there, what, you get there in uh, 2004 at some point in time? Yeah, so I think I got to Fort Benning, like, late winter, early spring. Um, In Fort Benning, there's only two seasons, hot and less hot. So I got there, like, right on the cusp of less hot and hot um, in Fort Benning, Georgia. And we trained... For about eight months, and then our first deployment was in January of 2005. For at the yeah. time, it was called OIF three. Yeah, I don't know what if it's. I was there. Called. You were there. I was so there. So I was. Uh, yeah, it was 2005, January 2005 to January 2006. Okay. So it was the second deployment for anyone who's like an E4 or above in our unit, pretty much. Um, and then a, uh, the first deployment for you know a bunch of us that had joined right after 9/11. Those guys. Um, and we were stationed in Bakuba, Iraq and Bakuba. A lot of people have never heard of Bakuba. It's in the Diala province. Oh, I, I heard of it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> a lot, a lot of bad dudes. Yeah. There was, there was a couple of bad, uh, bad muchachos, uh, that hung out in that bad area. Dudes. Yeah. I mean, so it's one of those areas that's about, uh, let's call about 25 minutes North uh, of Baghdad, you know, you, you shoot up the main highway and mm-hmm. uh, yep. you'll pass a place called Taji, which had another huge American base. And about another 15 minutes north of there to the northeast was was Bakuba. And uh, we had some of our Iraqi soldiers who were from that area. Uh, and that's, that's the main reason I know about it. And they would tell me uh, about the danger that was in that area. And because it wasn't heavily patrolled, because it wasn't an area that the United States spent a lot of time in. A lot of bad dudes got to go hang out there and be pretty safe and secure. Yeah, so uh, the biggest uh, fob near us at the time was Fob Warhorse. Mm-hmm. And okay. then on the other side of the town of Bakuba was Fob Gabe. Fob Gabe was tiny. It had like a two-company garrison. It was very small. It had a tiny little defect on it, not much else. My company, we got to do something real cool, um, which also sucked. But in retrospect, I can appreciate how unique of a opportunity and experience it was. Our company and just our company alone was sent to 
live in the Iraqi police station in the middle of the city. Yeah, that so, is nuts. That's, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't sleep well at night. You didn't. So uh, right above my bed, there was a hole in the concrete wall from where an RPG had came in like maybe two weeks before we got there. And there was a hole in the wall. Well, okay. But let me just for the, for the, for the listeners big. here kind of create some, a little bit of context. Uh, in that time, 2005, 2006, you are approaching the height of the violence in Iraq, which preceded the surge, right? The whole reason for the surge is because 2005, 2006 got way freaking bonkers. And all of us who were there were dealing with IEDs off the charts and everything else. But not only that, you know, it was the rise of Sadr City. It was the rise of, uh, you know, the the Muslim attacks on Muslim attacks that just created more chaos in a situation that was already chaotic. And part of the attacks were that, hey, look, we know we can't defeat the Americans if we attack them because they've got too much firepower. So let's just go pick on the Iraqi police. And not only did they pick on the Iraqi police as sort of soft targets, they did the bad guys, the Mujahideen and, and wherever else you want to say it, you know, whoever, whatever the enemy was in Iraq, Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Um, they also infiltrated Iraqi police with moles. It was the easiest thing for them to do was to sign up. Hey, I want to protect Iraq. I want to be a good guy. I want to help everybody out. Except, yeah, you know, you're the bad guy. Um, and so that's why I say I wouldn't sleep well at night knowing what I know now. You probably were. I was probably less unassuming back then. Um, you knew that there were moles out there, but you just kind of like, come on. Did, did, could we really have let one of these one of these jokers in who was who was faking the whole time? Like, who's vetting this whole process? Yeah, well, it turns out nobody. But that's a different conversation. So, yeah. um, again, providing all that context, when you're telling me you're sleeping above an Iraqi police station, oh hell no. Let's uh, uh, hard hard pass. Thanks. Yeah. So in a, I don't know how big the room was. Um, you know, your memory is tricky, but we had my entire, pretty much the majority of my platoon slept in one just big room. Okay. So there was eight bunk beds. Everybody got their own set of bunk beds to put all your crap on the top and then sleep on the bottom. That's pretty much uh, what we did. We lived off the Iraqi power grid, so we didn't have generators. Um, we lived off the Iraqi water supply, which means we were rationed Ooh. for when we could shower. We did not drink that water. Okay, we I was going to say in. when you said that, I'm like, Ooh, no. Yeah, Don't we would that. bring in we would bring in drinking water. That was part gotcha. of my my platoon's mission is we did daily log pack. So every single day, uh, we would go and either drive to Fob Gabe or Fob Warhorse and try to adjust our time of that we left and our route that we would take. I was just going to say like, that is only so many routes that you can take. Uh, that is wow. Uh, in retrospect, hearing that I'm like, dude, you should be dead. Um, I was out on the road on average four to five days a week, um, pretty much for a year straight. And that was a ton. Um, and I was going different places, uh, Generally, I didn't have to worry about taking different routes. I just checked with the, the road clearance to see what roads were red, which ones were black, and tried to stay away from them as best I could um, or just postpone the mission. Nothing was – very few missions were that sort of time critical um, that needed to get done. But, I, I, again, I say all this with some context that being out on the roads every single day is rolling the dice with, with God and, and praying he doesn't call your number. Yeah, we were like – we were a three Humvee patrol, and usually I was riding – second or third truck and I would pull the trailer that we would go to pick up because we had no laundry services. We had no fresh water. We had no hot food at the place that I lived. So once a day, every day we would go pick up water, 
drop off laundry at the fob, pick up clean laundry, and then pick up mermites, hot meals, which were gross, but they were warm food, and then bring that back so that we could have warm dinner uh, for the entire company every night. But we had no hot breakfast, uh, no hot lunch. So we had MREs for breakfast. Usually we didn't eat them. We would just get granola bars or whatever sent from home. But like our meals from the Army was MRE for breakfast, MRE for lunch, log pack, mermite meals that by the time people were eating them were five, six, seven hours old, depending on when your your shift was uh, for force security because we had guys on the roof, guys at the gate, um, guys at the base of the stairs where they come up to the American living quarters and a guy at the top of the stairs for the American living quarters. And we never unloaded our weapons. So when you go on a fob, you have to clear your weapons, you know, green, green, you know, all that stuff. We got on base. We were red. We stayed red. I went to sleep red. Well, your commander was smart then. Uh, yeah. We I mean, went, that, that's all I would say. You're going to the restroom. You're red. You're like, you always had your magazine and we weren't allowed to leave our rooms without helmets and body armor. Like I would carry my body armor and my helmet to the gym, take it off, work out, put it back on. Cause I can't, I can only shower like twice a week or once a week and then walk back to my room. That, that, that would seems a little bit excessive, but again, you know, different commanders do things different ways. Yeah. Um, you know, I was like an E3. I didn't, I know I didn't talk back or it was the E4. Maybe I, mean, I didn't talk back back then. I tell you, just run really fast to the gym. How's that sound? Roll the dice. If you'd like, it was because, all on one building. It was self-contained. Right. So it's not like I even went outside to go to the gym. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, it was all on that second floor. But if we were leaving our room, they wanted to make sure we had ammos, armor, helmet, weapon at all times. Wow. And that, that makes is... sense later on. Sure. Um, I mean, I could get to it right now. Um, well, hold on to it. We'll, we'll reference okay. it back. I, I just, you know, for the listening audience, I want them to get a better kind of understanding of, of, you know, the things that went on. Um, now being on the road that much, um, I, I, I am curious how often you came under or, or were hit with IEDs or yeah. I mean, you had to like, literally you had to. So I was a driver pretty much exclusively for my first deployment. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty much. I just drove a Humvee every day. Sometimes I'd switch out with our gunner cause we were both like PFCs. Um, but my my team leader, who I drove for, he preferred. He thought I was a better driver, so he had me drive. I don't think I was, but I don't know. Um, and so during that deployment, I got rocked. Um, when I say rocked, that means like direct hit against my vehicle. I don't know, five, six, seven, eight times. Something like at a certain point, you're like, "Well, does that count as a direct hit?" Because it went off ten feet in front of my Humvee. Like I don't, you know, it's like it depends. Um, but we saw IEDs probably once a week at least. Uh, but you know, a lot of times they weren't, um, when it hit us directly, it'd just be like, or it'd be something really small and it'd be like a flat tire on a Humvee. And like, after a while, once you've been rocked by a couple of big ones, you're like, that is, that, that barely counts. Um, and I remember listening to an episode from just a couple of weeks ago and you're like, just because people have it worse, doesn't mean it's bad for you. And that's not necessarily a good coping mechanism. Right. Sure. That's completely what we did all the time. We're like, Oh, that was a small IED. It's fine. We're all, it's fine. Um, which in retrospect, I'm now like, you know, like, no, that was crazy. Like, no. I yeah. I mean, that. look for a sports analogy, 
Um, when you have 3,000 hits, the bunt single counts as much as the triple that you hit in the corner, right? They're both hits. So yeah. uh, they, they count as one as far as total hits, and that it counts. Uh, and, yeah. and what we didn't realize at the time when you would say, oh, that's no big deal, it's all cumulative, right? It's not a reset, but after the big one, your body doesn't automatically reset back to, okay, now I'm baseline zero again, so that little one doesn't matter. No, it resets to a new baseline, which is already in a worse position than when you first started. So a lot of – it's the drinking philosophy on an airplane. A lot of little bottles equal a big bottle, right? Yeah. Either yeah. way, you're going to get drunk. So there, there's that. I do remember it was like probably like my first really big IED that I got hit with. It hit on the on the driver's side, like right at my front wheel um, and shattered the front windshield that I was driving. And, those, you know, the glasses, thick. this thick, yep. I mean, it's an inch, inch and a half thick. It's, glass, it's really man. thick. Um, and this is in not like the super great up armored Humvees that they have now or they had on my second deployment. It's just like kind of up armored. Now, it wasn't like. I'd be dead if it was just like the plastic things that we had during like OIF two, which was insane. They're driving around like that. Um, but that one really, uh, that was like my first time I really got rocked and it like hit me like, and I was like, Oh, I almost died. Like that's, that was the first time I had the Holy shit. I might die moment. Yeah. Yeah. The pucker um, factor, pucker factor tight, comes in. Yeah. Just really like, oh my gosh. So I was the last vehicle in the convoy. We're pulling rear security. We're coming around a really large roundabout in Western uh, Bakuba. And normally there was Iraqi police there. And only in retrospect, do I remember right before it blew up going, where's the police today? Like they're always on this circle. And then in where an old IED blast had been, they put three, four, probably 155 size rounds in there, and it hit us. They were actually aiming for the LMTV that was right in front of us, I think, because that was a much softer target than our Humvee. It hit us, blew out all four tires, just like blew the engine, was like half of it was dangling. We limped forward maybe uh, another 50 yards or so. We were going pretty fast, probably 30, 40 miles per hour in this couple ton vehicle. I got knocked unconscious for a little bit. My gunner got knocked unconscious for a little bit. I was driving my platoon sergeant that day. He got rattled. We had some like random military intelligence guy with us who like never left Fob Warhorse. It's like his third time leaving base and he's with us and he's in my you know back passenger side. He gets, he gets rocked also. Um, we're like, yeah, that was so they had to drag us back to the base. All our mechanics are like, oh my gosh, my window had one pane left. So it had gone through, there's like 12 panes or something in those old windows. It had gone through 11 of the 12, and there was just the one left, and there was a big piece of shrapnel sticking in my window that made it all the way back um, to the base. Um, so that was like the first time. So time technology like, actually helps you out, right? I mean, you know, it always yeah. fails when you need it to. At least it worked there. God bless you. Yeah. So, and it was like right here. It would have gone right in the dome. Um, so you just, but I, what, how old was I? 19? Mm-hmm. You're invincible. You don't, you just don't think about it too much. you like, just don't think about it. Don't concentrate on it too much. Because if you think about it, you become paralyzed. And if you're paralyzed, then you're a useless soldier. And that's like your biggest fear. You don't want to be 
useless. It's not about like being cool or being a hero. It's about just being there for your buddies next to you on your left and your right. I got to ask you just because it relates to my own experience. Um, One of the times we, the first time we got hit with an IED to this day, uh, I can still hear the crunch of metal in my right ear because it was on the passenger side that it hit. Um, And, you know, that's such a familiar sound to me from the explosion when you can hear metal crunch and break and just fold, right? Um, anything like that from the blast for you? I I don't – I think I got knocked unconscious pretty quick. I don't recall any of that. I just remember waking up to, uh, you know, the movie, how the movies did the beep, like that noise, yep. which, you know, you still uh, – tinnitus is what it's called. Yes, yes, still yes. have that to this day. Uh, just remember like waking up and there's like Americans standing outside my Humvee and I'm like, Hey, I was asleep for, I don't know how long it was. <laughs> uh, I took a little nap, I guess. So, and my gunner was like laying on the floor next to me, but our doors were all locked. So we had to like unlock the doors so they could get in uh, to help us. And I mean, we, we were fine. Like but we all had concussions yeah. So we were um, fine. I went on mission the next day. So. Right. I mean, any sort of deterrence for that young kid who wanted to go capture and kill bad guys after that going, okay, uh, uh, the game changes a little bit because the enemy has a say. I I don't know. I didn't think, I, mean, I don't know if I thought about it in that way. It might have made me more, maybe not that incident, maybe me having that close encounter with death. Um. Maybe not that incident kind of deterred me, but there was enough other things going on in the region and Americans dying and stuff like that, that any sort of deterrence that I felt personally, what was happening to other people, it was happening to Americans in the region, put a fire that would have, you know, pushed that to the, to the lower levels of my subconscious and didn't matter. Cause it wasn't at that point after talking to all these guys who had done OIF one tip of the spear. And then the reasons I joined the military, it would have been, well, it took about five years for me to decide, okay, I think I've done my piece and I'm ready to get out. So right. it, I wasn't ready yet. I wasn't ready to, to give up on my mission. Two, two more things from that first deployment. One, um, I wanted to get to the story of uh in in the police building um that you were referencing a moment ago but also i mean ieds weren't the only thing you guys dealt with apparently suicide bombers were another part of your experience suicide bombers mortars lots of mortars um i do recall one day we're driving in to fob warhorse and there's a roundabout right outside of fob warhorse just to the southwest of the main entrance of fob warhorse and there was a bunch of concrete pillars around it to like control it. There was Iraqi police that controlled the roundabout. And as we're coming into the roundabout, they start someone shooting mortars from us out of the back of a pickup truck. And all the mortars are landing in like right inside of the circle and right next to these concrete. And they're blowing up just to our left and our right. But because they're not inside the concrete, they're blowing up just right on the outside. It's just like sprinkling us with dirt. Like, and I'm driving. I can't see where I'm going at all because it's just dirt everywhere, just smoke and everything. And so I'm gunning it in this whatever thousand pound ton Humvee and just pretending like I know where I'm going. And eventually I'm just too scared to keep going because I'm going so fast. I slam on my brakes. 
we just got to wait for the air to clear and the air is slowly clearing. And I realized I'm about four feet away from running directly into the Iraqi police outpost. Oh. It would have like slammed in. And I don't know. It would have probably, we probably would have been fine, but I probably would have killed some Iraqi police that were inside of their little place with sandbags and stuff. And I was just like, ah! and, then just, and then got out of the way. But yeah, we had um, suicide bombers as well. We had V bids. Uh, were issues that happened a lot in my second deployment as well. Have you ever re-engaged your team leader who thought you were a great driver to tell him after the fact, yeah, I suck at this? Uh, he, he, <laughs> I was more careful than my gunner. That's okay, the reason. Well, That's the only go. reason. Your my gunner would have crashed into the wall. Into yeah. he, was, he was crazy. Uh, that's why he's like, I want the crazy guy on the gun and the dude with the head on his shoulders behind the wheel. And I'm like, okay, well, I guess that makes sense. I'm like, but the gun, he just like, that seems like more fun. But then when it was hot and there was like dust in his face and I had air conditioning, I was like, nah, I'm good. I like being the driver today. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but do you lost some guys in that first deployment? Didn't you? Yeah. So not my platoon. Luckily, uh, we were able to get out with everybody, but in the company, uh, we lost a couple of guys. We lost our Lieutenant from our second platoon, Lieutenant Diaz, uh, and a civilian contractor in a, suicide bomber attack actually so um on, on the remember. base or like out on the roads oh out on the roads um was the no i'm asking was a suicide bomber did it hit like the front gate of the base or did it happen to him on the road itself oh no it happened inside of our base oh really so mark you were just talking about bad guys pretending to be police yeah, yeah. that's exactly actually what happened to us we had an iraqi police recruit we think it was a recruit at this point um, who had a suicide vest on that was like molded explosives with um, ball bearings placed into it, who walked into our dining hall, which was not in the main building, but we had a separate little. So we had a main building, then there was like a parking area, and then there was exterior buildings. And then outside of the exterior buildings was the civilian world or the bad guys, right? supposedly. Um, and so we had a dining hall and that's where we keep the mermites. That's where we keep muffins and stuff like that. And after the Americans ate, we would let the Iraqi police go and eat whatever they wanted. Our Lieutenant had been doing training with a civilian, um, police officer, uh, from Idaho. And they had gone in with the Iraqi police. One of those Iraqi police had a suicide vest on detonated inside of there, killed about 12 Iraqi police, plus our lieutenant, plus our civilian. And actually, the, the explosion was so big, it blew the concrete walls out of the structure that was there. Um, Where are you when you hear the explosion? I'm in my room, which was on the same side of the building. Here's the building. Here's where it was. I was in my room. And when it exploded, the whole building just shook. And so we thought it was a V-bid or something like that outside of the base. And so we grab our stuff. I was wearing... Um, PT shorts and my body armor and my helmet had my gun um, and flip-flops go running outside and like the walls are falling down and there's just red splatter on the ceiling of the dining hall from where the guy had detonated himself and just bodies everywhere. Um, and could, so could you identify the fact that it was that Lieutenant? No, I, I didn't know. You could tell based off of the uniform right, that, that it was, was an American. American. Okay. 
but that was it. So uh, we saw that there was an American. We had, you know, our we were doing first aid on some of the Iraqi police that were still responding, uh, but our lieutenant was gone. It was very clear, very early that he he was no longer with us. Is that an image that stays with you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just don't that visceral amount of like gore and death. It's not something that. Oh yeah. Uh, you just you know when it's real and it's three feet in front of you and it's not it's Hollywood, different. Right. Then watching a movie mm-hmm. and being like, oh, that's really good visual effects. Like, no, I'm like, that's why when I do watch movies now with my wife, my especially when I watch war movies, she hates it. Because I'm like, that's not what it looks like. That's not how they talk to each other. <laughs> like, she's like, just, yeah. Josiah, just watch the movie. I'm like, that's not actually how gunfire works. Uh, that, that, that's not how you, you would actually do that. So, yeah, I, I do the same thing. I critique every war movie based off of its realism. And, and yeah. it's funny because I've said this, and we've had several uh, people who have either worked on war movies, been in war movies, directed war movies on the show. And I, I always tell them when they make a film, I go, I can tell if the combat is authentic if I can start to feel my heart race and my hand shake a little bit. Like I could just start to start, you know, like I could feel that adrenaline start to pump. Um, like I'm getting ready for combat myself just watching it. That's how I know if you're creating something authentic. Uh, yeah. I, I think that's the best barometer, at least that I have. Uh, when it comes to comes to war movies, so what was the uh, experience you had walking from room to room uh, that you were referencing before? When I, when I was after the no, after when the, you said when you were talking about, uh, I thought it was silly that you had to wear all your gear to go from point A to point B, and you said it came out to help you. Am I am I remembering it correctly? Well, so like we were, so the compound after that. Um, after the suicide bomber, it was, we were on lockdown for, um, for like a considerable amount of time after that. But we had, we were, even before this happened, we were wearing, um, just to use the latrine up on the second floor. Cause the second floor was just the American floor. So we had our talk up there. We had like one room and then it was just, everybody slept up there. Um, and so even before, um, LT got um, LT died and all of this other stuff. We were already wearing um, full body armor and our helmet and carrying our weapon everywhere. Anytime we went um, outside of our room. Um, but then after that, uh, it just felt, it felt different um, because they got us where we thought we were safe. Like we thought we were, even though we still had all of our stuff and we still had our weapons that like, it just was a different um, tempo. And that just changed like you want to trust the Iraqi police because it's going to be their country one day and you want to put faith in them. But it's at the same time, after that happens, you got too much you lose track just record. a little bit yeah. of your humanity, a little bit. It just, you gotta, it takes time to rebuild it and rebuild your trust in the Iraqi police, which I don't think ever came back. Like it was before that. Cause I saw great Iraqi police that were just fearless fighting bad guys. But then when that happened, it just always was there in the back of the head. Even for my second deployment, I had to make sure I to tell my guys who had never deployed before. I'm like, you're never alone with them ever. Yep. You're uh, never alone with them. You're always paying attention, which leads to, you know, hypervigilance all the time, which, you know, there's still after effects of that to this day. So no, hundred percent. I mean, again, it was, it was DTA. Don't trust anyone. You know, that's kind of what it, uh, 
kind of what it felt like for a better part of the time. By the way, you know, this whole deployment, you went through all this stuff. Um, you signed up to be a combat engineer and blow things up and do everything else. It seems like you got the receiving end of blowing things up and being shot at. Did you ever get to do any of the stuff that you actually signed up to do on this deployment or no? No, like we, we, we had one cool mission where we were going to go clear mm-hmm. um, a palm grove and we we're going to use deck cord and C4 to clear this palm grove because, you know, Haji, uh, which because bad guys, uh, Haji is actually a term of endearment, yes. which I learned wise later old, on. Wise old man. Yeah, I thought I was saying something mean, but it's actually something endearing. Yes. Um, so we kept getting attacked out of this palm grove. They were shooting rockets and mortars. So we we're going to blow the palm grove so we could see them if they tried to do it. And then another platoon got the mission at the last second. And so this whole deployment training, you know, basic training, teaching how to do all these explosives and all this stuff. And uh, yeah, I just got, I was taught how to were you, be blown up. I didn't get were to you do bothered it. Blow by it? Up. Were you yeah. bothered that you didn't get a chance to do all this stuff? I got to do a lot of cool, like infantry style stuff. Mm-hmm. Also on that first deployment, instead of just doing like log pack was our daily mission to right, go and right. do that. But in addition, we did QRF missions. There was like a helicopter went down just South of us. And we, we were, we were the first platoon on the scene to like pull security. Um, we would have, um, Q, so QRF, we would go on foot mounted slash dismounted patrols during that deployment. My platoon sergeant also made me the designated marksman. So I had like a really cool scope and he'd have me go pull overwatch on the roof sometimes. So I got to do like a, all this cool, like what I would consider infantry tasks and skills that deployment. Our so company policy. Compl- so it didn't bother me that we, that I didn't get to blow anything up because when I got back, I went to Stanford school and they let me blow up a lot of stuff. So I don't know what just happened to my computer. So don't worry about it. We'll move on. Our company policy is to continue to tell great stories here on the hazard ground. How's that sound? Um, Regardless, I was just closing windows on my my computer because sometimes technology takes over, right? Like I get nervous. Um, Anyway, I apologize. But that said, you know, as you get back from this first deployment, um, is your mindset changed about where you are in the military and your stance on it? Did you feel like you'd had enough? I know you said that happened on your second deployment, but what were you thinking um, are you ready for more? Do you want to stay in? Do you want to get out? What are you thinking at this point? At that point in my career, I just finished pretty well, 13 month deployment. I'm still, I'm still 20 years old, not even old enough mm-hmm. to drink a beer yet. And I was, I was really at that time considering I might make this a career. I might do 20 years as an enlisted combat engineer. Like this is, I loved what I did. I love the my platoon sergeants and and my squad leader and I respected them and saw what they had done in their careers. And so I knew I still had another three years plus in the army. So I was like, you know, I'll probably re-enlist on my next deployment and then we'll see where it goes from there. I was ready at that point, 20-year-old Josiah was ready to retire, which is funny enough, I'd be retiring next year. If I had decided to stay in, but I probably wouldn't be married, have twin girls, any of that good jazz. So probably made the best decision in the long run. Another piece of symmetry. I have twin boys. So there you go. Uh, More connection. So you decide to stay in. You go to Sapper School. Um, All the engineers I know is so prestigious about this tab, man. They love it. It's it's the lifeblood. Uh, Sense of pride about you being a Sapper now officially. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we, we, we got back from our deployment 
Uh, the company commander, you know, first started to disseminate through, we're going to have a couple of slots for Sapper School coming up in a few months. Who wants to go to Sapper School? And I was like, I want to, I want to go, go to Sapper School. That sounds amazing. Like all the officers that I most respected, all the platoon sergeants and squad leaders that I thought were the biggest badasses all had their sapper tab. Some were ranger sapper too. And I was like, Oh, those dudes are, those dudes are, <laughs> uh, I was like, I want to do it. So I think there was eight or nine of us from the company. We didn't know how many slots we were going to get. Could have been just like two, could have been eight or nine. Who knew? We're, they're like, all right, we're going to start training up for this. And so they, we would do 12 mile ruck marches. We were doing PT twice a day. So we do regular PT with the company and then we do afternoon PT session as well. So we're doing PT twice a day. Boy, that's impressive. The people that are smoking us and training us were were tapped. They already had their sapper tab. So we respected them for it. We did extra land navigation. We we were doing solo land navigation. Now I'm just an E4 still, just a specialist. And they're like, all right, here, you're on the land nav course. Come back in a couple hours. I hope you don't get lost. It's like, oh, that's scary. Um We ended up getting five slots for Sapper School. And while they didn't tell me this, I'm pretty sure I was the fifth pick. I'm pretty sure I only got in because my platoon sergeant had some pull and was like, he can do it. I really think he can. And so I got to go to Sapper School. And of the five of us that went, four of us got our tab. And I think Sapper School for that month that I was in, we started with 52, 54, something like that, people Mm -hmm. starting Sapper School. And only 17 of us ended up getting our tab. And four of them were all from my company. Wow. And so I was really just that one training session, having the, the year in Iraq. So I've learned how to suck it up. Like I know what it, it's like when it sucks. So having that year in Iraq to kind of build that intestinal fortitude, learn how, you know, like when things are tough, you can keep pushing. And then having that month long training where they just tested that your mental fortitude to the extreme showed me that even when it's bad, even when your body's breaking down, you can do more. You can keep pushing. You can do this. And so when I got that tab, I was probably a real asshole for about a year or so because I thought I was pretty high on myself there well, for a little bit. Uh, listen, as a, as a professional in that department uh, for much more than a year, um, I'll give you a little bit of grace on it. You know, um, there's a – there's a, there's a certain amount of asshole in all of us. Uh, some just exude it better than others. So yeah, that make, pulled it out. Make, that uh, that school did for sure. <laughs> uh, so from there, um, you get sent to my old stomping grounds at Fort Hood, Texas, as well. Yeah. So after, after Sapper School, I got uh, PCS orders to Fort Hood. I was with this really tiny engineer company for like three weeks, mm-hmm. and I don't know why I was sent there, but I think they were just waiting for third ACR to get from Fort Carson to like Fort hood. And then I was at in the 43rd engineer company, combat engineer company with, uh, three of the three ACR, um, uh, uh, blood and steel. That's what, that's what we used to <laughs> yell, uh, at formations. So, um, but uh, yeah, I was an E4 when I got there. I, at my old company, they were going to put me up for promotion, but then I got my PCS orders and it just never happened. And then I'm at my new unit. They don't know who this guy is. He's this E4 with a tab. We're rebuilding this company. So a bunch of people had, we just gotten back, that company had just gotten back from deployment. A bunch of people had PCS or ETS or whatever it was. And so the company was rebuilding. So even as like an E4, I was a squad leader 
when the first when the company was first rebuilding. So I was able because of being a bit of an a-hole, plus having a tab, plus having a combat experience, was able to get promoted pretty quickly. I made sergeant and then went to the staff sergeant board before we deployed and then made staff sergeant first month of my second deployment. So I was a staff sergeant my whole uh, second deployment. In November 2007, I pinned staff. So, um, But this deployment, um, unlike the second one, uh, you were more into the engineer um, more of the engineer role, and yet still, that doesn't necessarily relate to you doing engineer jobs, from what I understand. I think I would be, if I went back into the Army now, I'd be a very poor combat engineer. <laughs> I would be a very poor combat Why? engineer. Why? Because I've never done it, actually. Because <laughs> I've never done combat engineer tasks in country, in deployment. So our second deployment, uh, one of the tank platoons from Heavy Company, uh, 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment, got sent to support an infantry company that was out doing their own thing at like a little cob or fob or something, which means now this tank platoon, this tank company was down a platoon, and they were like, well, we need somebody to help us do sort of infantry tasks, dismounted patrols, stuff like this. And I don't know if it's because we were the best platoon in our company or like the stepchild platoon that our first sergeant didn't want to deal with. I don't know what it was, but they sent my platoon, third platoon, to go and be the third platoon of this heavy company, this tank company. So now we have my first, my lieutenants answering to the heavy company commander, the, the tank commander. You know, I'm in formations with tankers and stuff, which is funny because in the Army, we like to make fun of tankers for being like slow and fat. Uh, but my roommate we was dads, in- right? Yeah, but my roommate who was a tanker was like six foot four and a beanpole. And I'm like, bro, you broke the system. You're not, you're supposed to be like a calf scout or something, not a tanker. He's like, I like shooting things. I'm like, okay, that's cool. Um, and so we were, we were blue platoon, heavy blue is what we called ourselves because we're a heavy company, blue platoon for the entire 15 month, because at this point we're doing 15 month deployments. From November of 2007 until March of 2009, I served as a squad leader in a tank company over engineers acting like infantry. So, hoorah. Go Army. <laughs> it is kind of uh, funny as well. I mean, look, I'm a I'm a log guy, and I, I joke, um, but it's, it's true. I probably saw more combat than 75% of the infantry did in Iraq when I was there just because of the nature of the assignment. You know, a lot of those guys were out guarding gates and, and guarding prisons and everything else. Um, they didn't get to do a ton of patrols. And like I said, I was out on the streets of Baghdad three, four, five days a week on a routine basis. Uh, um, and not chasing bad guys. I was running, you know, log convoys and everything else. But still, I was running from them. So I guess that counts uh, depending on, you know, like you said, it all counts. Um, it all counts, Yeah. Okay, so you had had all these IEDs sort of rock you on your first one. Um, when you get to your second deployment, is your mindset different in a sense that like, okay, I'm, I'm trying to avoid these things. You know, I know this could kill me. I almost died like three times last time. Were you just sort of succumbing to the fact that this is the nature of the job and you're not able to do it? You're not able to avoid it. Yeah, the first, the first deployment <laughs> being a PFC specialist, it was much more about me. Right. It's like, this. what am I going to do? How am I going to kill bad guys? How am I? There's a lot of I statements. Right. And the second deployment, we have a little bit more 
uh, perspective. It's my second deployment. Um, staff sergeant now. I'm looking at how am I going to make sure my guys get home safe? So, like, the mindset changed to it's not just about, like, we're, we need to complete the mission. But it's more of a we statement, not an I statement at that point, which is just shows I still wasn't that old, uh, but shows some maturity as far as my perspective. And I didn't want to focus it on me anymore. It wasn't about like, I need to go out and kill bad guys. It's like, we need to do the mission of our company, of our platoon, so that our battalion is successful, so the brigade's successful, so that we can eventually turn this back over to Iraqi police and get out of here. So that my kids don't have to come back and we're still fighting in this country 20 years later. That's like, that's, I took a, I had gained perspective between the first and the second deployment and just used that when I was thinking about day-to-day operations and how that was affecting my actions and decisions. So tell me about uh, the time um, and you referenced this in some of your notes uh, that you were wounded with a hand grenade in close quarters combat. Yeah. So I was on my second appointment. I was uh, awarded the purple heart and the bronze star uh, with valor V device. Um, we'd only been in country a few months. We'd taken over a hundred percent from our unit that was leaving before us on first of December, 2007. No, 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 2007. Yeah. 2007. And then this is in January of 2008. So we're still learning the AO, our company, heavy company, was in charge of Western, like Southwestern Missoula. And so it was a pretty large AO for a single company to yeah. be in charge of. And so we had a couple of missions, which included no route clearance, which was great. I was like, yay, don't have to. Route clearance is boring. It's very stressful and boring. And so I'm like, I was super glad I never had to do route clearance. But we're it's January in Missoula, which is actually surprisingly cold. Um, people think Iraq is hot all the time. No, there, there's mountains up there. Yeah, Missoula's cold in January. It's a cold time of the year. But we were on a we had four Humvees that day with our platoon with our platoon, and uh, we're doing a mounted slash dismounted patrol. And since I was the senior squad leader in the platoon, I would pretty much take lead Humvee pretty much all the time. Like I I felt it was my responsibility. I was tabbed. I was an E6. The other squad leader was just an E5 at the time. Can't put LT in the front. LT wants to be in the front all the time. We're like, no LT. And they're like, the platoon sergeant shouldn't ride in the front. Like, that doesn't make sense. So it only it made logical sense. I had more combat experience. I had, you know, I felt it was my job. And people didn't really argue with you. If you're like, I want to take lead truck, for those part, people are like, yeah, sure, bro. You See, get you know, blown up. I got to just interject. Every convoy I ran, I chose to be the lead vehicle. I just okay. felt like I had better C2 from there. I felt like I had better command and control. I had a great rapport, like, like rapport. My gunner, my driver, and I understood each other and our thoughts so well that it was, I didn't have to ask, hey, where are they? You know, he would just keep putting down hand signals and letting me see, go fast, good. We're, you know, like he could drop his arm, keep a, a finger on the trigger and scan his sector and put his hand down by his leg. You know, like we had developed a system and we had so much great nonverbal communication to understand what was going on around us. And I just, if anything bad was going to happen, I always felt like I wanted to be at the front of it. You know, like I wanted to be the first one, especially with IEDs. You know, I always just felt like, look, if they were there, 
chances are they're going to go for the first vehicle, or if it's not command detonated, the first vehicle is going to set it off. And yeah. so I always just felt like that was the spot I needed to be in. Um, but, you know, your your leadership never wanted to be in the front? No, he did. Okay. Oh, no, my platoon leader was a former enlisted Marine Oh, who did embassy guard in, like, Yemen. So this dude was uh, tough as nails. I had the utmost respect for him. He was, you know, he's also old. Right. Because he was like 30, you know, maybe 32, something like that. So at the time, he's old because we're a bunch of guys. I wish I was old again. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Looking back now, I'm like, he was not old. But like, we, because he'd done six years in the Marines. Sure. Gone to college, came back when OCS. So I had the utmost respect for him. But it was our policy in the region for when you're doing combat operations that you, you shouldn't have the leadership of the platoon in the front because that is the vehicle that's going to get rocked the hardest with IEDs, which okay. happened to me a bunch of times. Yeah. Okay. So you don't lose your command and control when the you know your platoon leader is unconscious. I, I could I could have just never been satisfied with that as logic for it, right? Like if I haven't trained the rest of the people who work with me to be able to make decisions like I can, then I failed them as a leader, right? Theoretically, the way our, our system works is that somebody is there to backfill you at all times. Whenever you're out, whether it's leave, vacation, hospital stay, pregnancy, whatever it may be, there is somebody who is there to backfill you and do your job, in theory, as good as you do. My job is to make sure that they can do that. And I've said for the last 15 plus years of my career. I'm not training you to do the job that you're in. I'm training you to do the job that I have. That's my, my sole goal is to make you ready to do my job, um, not train you to the job you're in. Because if you can't do the job that you're in, your previous leadership failed you because you shouldn't be here. Right? I mean, it's nobody teaches anybody how to be a Major League Baseball player if they don't know how to be a Major League Baseball player. You don't learn that stuff on the job for the most part. You're, you're, you're good enough to be there. So... I just I could have never been satisfied with, well, you'd lose command and control if you were in. No, this is where I'm comfortable. I'm running the damn convoy. You're in an office. I'll do this my way. So on this actual mission, he did end up taking first truck after some other stuff happened. But no, that was that was uh, that was it. It was command and control. And I hear you when it comes to your troopers should be organized and ready and be trained. Um, and we, when LT went on mission or an LT went on his two weeks vacation, my platoon sergeant was acting LT and he was command and control and I was acting platoon sergeant and I hated it because um, <laughs> I had to hang out with our medic who was kind of weird. Uh, I think most medics are weird, uh, but he uh, I was like, this is not this is not my jam. Plus, I liked being up front also. So I do. I do hear you about the command and control. Yeah. Um, and training your guys for the next step. But on this day, it was early January of 2008. We had four Humvee patrol, and we were doing a mounted slash dismounted. So we mounted to the area, then we dismount. Our Humvees are with us. We're walking through this neighborhood. Uh, pretty much this is like as a presence patrol, a react to contact sort of patrol looking for bad guys in western Missoula. And then while we're on this, we get a call through, um, the, through the company radio Get in your Humvee right now. Go, go, go. There's this vehicle. You know, they give us the name and the license. They're like, it's on this road. We have a C-130 
that's doing Overwatch right now that has eyes on. There is bad guys. You have um, you have open to engage. You do not have to wait to be shot at. Like go now. So we jump in our Humvees, but we have to like back out of this alleyway because it's too tight for us to just turn around. And you know how tight some of those little alleyways get. We turn around. Mm-hmm. So my LT, since he's the way it just works out with our four Humvees all lumbering around, he ends up in the front vehicle. I end up behind him, then our platoon sergeant, and then the other squad leader. So we got our four Humvees going along. We drive about 600, 700 meters down the road towards where we're told to be headed, which we now have a C-130 talking to battalion, talking to our company, who's then relaying the information to us. So super efficient, you know, information's passing not quickly. Just a little lag time. Just just a little. The delay between... When something would happen that we would get told to do something, it's horrible. Um, so we're about 600 yards, 600 meters from where we had started, and an explosion goes off right behind me. And I'm, like, looking in my rearview mirror, and my platoon sergeant's truck was hit with an IED as we're going after this other vehicle that we know there's bad guys in. So he's railing over the radio. I'm okay. I got flats. I got flats. And my LT's, like, just yells at my other uh, squad leader he's like stay with them and so just now it's just two trucks just me and my LT were flying towards uh, where, we're, where we're supposed to be going and we take this hard right turn and so now we're just driving around in Missoula separated from the other piece of our unit just two Humvees by ourselves I only have three guys in my truck me my gunner and my driver and my LT has like the interpreter his driver and his gunner, and then himself. So there's only seven of us total. I mean, you can't even count the interpreter. He doesn't have a weapon going out by ourselves. And so after we make this corner, they're in a civilian vehicle. Obviously, they can go much faster than a Humvee. We hear over the radio uh, that they're getting away from us. And so as I look, I hear a helicopter. And I he- I'm like, what? I didn't know there was a helo in the area. I hadn't seen this during our you know dismounted patrol. I look up through the gunner's hatch. And I can see an attack helicopter flying over our head. It shoots a rocket, like, directly above us. It probably goes about eight, nine, 900 meters, hits this vehicle that's driving down the road, and it blows up. Wow. And I was like, American firepower. Like, it was just <laughs> so cool just to, like, see it happen. Like, you look up, you see the rocket ignite, and then, and I get to look out my front window and see it hit. Um, a vehicle full of bad guys. It just was amazing. So I hit it like right in the trunk or right in the um, pretty much pretty good hit on the vehicle there. But somehow two guys still managed to get out of this vehicle. Wow. Now we can't see these two guys because they're almost a click ahead of us, but we're still driving towards where this vehicle was hit. And at this point, all the civilian vehicles are just flying off the road. So we're getting really, we're able to catch up quite a bit. As we get up, we drive past this alleyway and then we're getting yelled at no no turn around go down that alleyway you just passed so then we flip around go down this alleyway unbeknownst to us those two guys had gone into this neighborhood off the side of the road one of them had only made it about 50 60 yards succumbed to his wounds and was dead and but the other guy was still alive tried to grab his friend and drag him for a little bit this was relayed to us later via the c-130 with had eyes on the whole time and then he sees that work coming and runs and hides in between two houses in this like little tiny narrow stitch. 
And so we come up, we actually drive past where he is. We're told to stop. We back up. My gunner sees a guy stick his head out. And he goes, is this the guy right there? And so for about 30 seconds, we're waiting for the relay of information to come and tell us that. <laughs> oh, God. Because it could just be in person. And we right. don't want to light up right. some random innocent civilian who's scared and hiding behind a building because there's Americans flying around. And there was just an explosion, you know, two minutes earlier or whatnot. And so we get there. They go, that's the guy. Right. But at this point, my gunner can't see him anymore. I tell my gunner, I'm like, light up that corner. So he's shooting at the corner between so the guy cannot run out. And so we have a house, a house, an alleyway, and then there's like an alleyway here and here. So my trucks are here and here, and so he's stuck in this alleyway. If he tries to get out either side, the gunners on our Humvees are going to light him up. He can't leave. Knowing there's only two dismounts, me and my lieutenant, my LT calls over the radio. He goes, he goes Guthlin, get up here. So I fly out. I'm going faster than Superman or anybody else. This is the fastest I've ever ran in my entire life, I swear. Clear this, full body armor. We run up. We come around. And as I'm running up to him, he runs down the side of the building. I come in right behind him. We get up to the corner. Our gunner shifts fire. So he's still shooting, but not at the corner anymore. We didn't even tell him. He just did it. Like, that's these guys were good. And as we're coming around the corner, we just pie that corner. I'm right. I have my barrel right over his shoulder. We're going around this corner. Coming up, we see the guy sees us, goes to lift a pistol, and we both just open fire on him. And we're not more than 12 feet away from him. He's right there. He's right in front of us. And so wow. we light him up. Um, so we both probably pop off five to eight rounds pretty quick succession. Boom, 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 boom. We're both using M4s at the time. And then my LT is like, you know, he's like, Cease fire, cease fire, right? So we're there. I'm still got eyes on him. My LT goes to look back at the Hummer, the Humvee, right? Tell him to pull it up so we can get security in this little alleyway with like the 240 on the Humvee. And I lo- I'm looking at this guy and he's not dead. He's been shot. But with 556, five, you can get shot and not die like right away. It's not a 50 cal or 240 or something. And he drops a hand grenade out of his belt. So when he went to go, like, go after us and he gets shot, he grabbed his belly. And we thought, well, you know, he got shot. He's just grabbing himself. A hand grenade rolls out. And so seven, eight feet away from me, I see a hand grenade. I look at my lieutenant. He's not looking at the hand grenade. So this all happened. It just so fast. I just push him behind the corner that we had just came around. And then as I'm jumping to try to get behind, the hand grenade explodes. I get fragments of hand grenade shrapnel in my body armor. It takes out a tooth. I get a, I have a fake tooth. It went through my lip. I had some stuff come off. the my took off a piece of my shin. Miraculously did not break the bone, but it just, like, nicked off a piece of my shin bone. And I fall down on my LT, knock him over. Um, he looks at me. He's talking, but I can't hear him because it's just beep going on at that moment. And I'm like, what? He's like, you're bleeding. Go to the Humvee. And I'm like, oh. And I just blood all over my glove. And all of this was being uh, watched, unbeknownst to us at the time, by the C-130 was happening, all of it. Um, And so the battalion command saw it and put me in for uh, the – I think they actually put me in for a Silver Star. And it was uh, downgraded to a Bronze Star Medal with Valor. But I don't think I deserved any of that because I literally just reacted – it wasn't me trying to be a hero. I didn't like run into a hail 
of bullets or anything like that. Literally, I just there was a hand grenade and I just pushed LT and then jumped, tried to jump out of the way myself. So it was not I was not some John Wayne hero charging the German trenches or anything. It literally was just a millisecond. And I just. I don't know. Couldn't let my LT die. When when you look back on it. um, Are you surprised at how quickly you were able to react? Yes. Why? Because in because I didn't there was no thought. There was no thought process of what happened. It just happened and I just did it and then it happened. So it felt like a car crash. Like you know you're gonna crash, but there's just nothing you yeah. can do at that point. <laughs> Been there. It just that's what it felt like. It felt like a car crash happening. And like I knew something bad was gonna happen. Did it seem like it was slow mo? Yeah. Now it like I but I also got a concussion. So like who knows how much I actually was real and like I remember and how much is like made up because they recorded that video and I got to watch it later. Oh really? Of it happening, which I don't have a copy of, probably because it was top secret or something. But um, um, I got to watch it happen, and I'm like, oh, because I don't even remember tech, like actually remember, remember pushing him. I did push him. I've seen it on video, but I don't necessarily even recall making the decision to push him. I just did. So I thought it was very kind of them to give me that. And say I'm valorous, but I'm like I maybe I was just trying to push him out of the way. You don't even know. So <laughs> maybe I didn't like him, and I just pushed him in the wrong direction. Maybe I was you know just trying to get, get take control here. No, I kid. Um, when you guys got like back and it, you, know, you had some time away, did you two sit down and have a conversation about it all and just sort of chuckle and reminisce and whoa, that was close. Yeah, LT was like so that we ended up being on site for like six hours afterwards. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't go back to base. Uh, I just shoved gauze down in my lip. Um, the, you know, medic gave me some, some stuff to like stick to my face and they pretty much uh, had left me in the truck and they were like, you need to stay in the truck cause you're bleeding out of your leg. Your face is bleeding. Like, but I wasn't dying. So we didn't like rush back to base. Right. So we stayed on site to pull security. Um, two tanks from our heavy company came to support us to help provide um, to Abrams came and provide so we could help, you know, block off the area so we could be there. And they end up recovering RPGs and uh, RPKs and all this other stuff in the trunk of this vehicle. These guys were out to do bad things. So it's like really good that uh, Intel found them or whatever, and that we were able to stop these guys. But I was out there for probably another six hours wow. or so. And then we got back to base, and then they had to do um, scans, looking for metal in my body that maybe I couldn't feel, stuff like this. Mm-hmm. And so, and then the next day they were like, "You're not going on mission," because like my face was all my at this point, my lip was swollen up like a like an orange or something huge because it just you know your face just bleeds so much when it's wounded. And then I did eventually talk with my LT, and my LT's like, "Okay, look." You saved me, but if there's an official kill count, I get the kill. And I'm like, you got it, Puss. Like, I don't, that's fine. I don't care. <laughs> like, that was, that was pretty much it. That's, like, pretty much all we talked about it. I think we both didn't spend too much focus or time on it. Right. Because we just – there's one thing getting hit with an IED and you got a vehicle. And there's another thing when it's right there and you barely get out of the way. Like, that's a real – 
that was my closest brush to death ever. I mean, I've been shot at before. I've had bullets whiz by my head, but like that had to have been the scariest thing that's ever happened to me, except maybe having twin girls um, in my entire <laughs> life. So we didn't spend too much time thinking about it. Plus we were in a high, really high operational tempo at that point. We were still going out on mission every day. Um, and there was stuff that needed to get done. So we just kind of was like, that was crazy. Acknowledged that it was crazy. And then just, we're like, we got to keep moving on. This is only January. We're going to be here till March of next year. Like we don't have time to like focus too much on this. So. That is, uh, that's crazy. You know, I, I do have one other question I need to ask you. Uh, when you lost the tooth and you got uh, it replaced, I'm curious as to why you didn't go with gold. Because a yeah, gold tooth and a name like Josiah would raise a lot of questions to everybody you ran into. So that army <laughs> tooth that they re- they rebuilt it like there was a nub left, right? It took right. it right off right, right off the top of the gums. They rebuilt it in country in Missoula, right at Bob Marez. Mm-hmm. They and I only got it replaced like four months ago. It had lasted like fifteen years. That one that they had done way back when. So I was really impressed with how long um, that lost, that lasted. I would have gone with silver anyways. I'm more of a silver jewelry guy. <laughs> Just any sort um, of bling, you know, would have worked. But that wasn't an option at Pomerantz. They didn't give me, they're like, hey, do you want the silver? They didn't give me that option. So I would have looked really cool. I would have blended in here in Baltimore a little bit more. So. Right. Exactly. Uh, you get back from that second deployment and um, your mindset about moving on from the military now sort of solidified at this point in time? Yeah, I just, with the the deployment, how quickly I was deploying. I mean, I, I spent from January of 2005 till March of 2009. That's like a little bit, what, that's four years, two months. I spent mm-hmm. 30 months of that, pretty much, almost, in Iraq or in Kuwait, right, before I went to Iraq. And that sort of deployment tempo where I was going and going for that far had just, it was just too much. And not just like too much on me, but it was like too much on my parents, on my mother, on um, my knees. Like my body hurt at that point. I don't know how many times you got to blow up before your knees start acting funky. Right, right. Just at that point, I was like, I had, I have done what I came to do. I have fought bad guys. I feel like Iraq's a better place, a safer place now. I don't know if that's true, but that's what I thought at the time. And I've done what I've, what I've came to do. And I signed up for five and I almost, I did five and a half. So I was ready. And I was like, I'm going to go to college. I, the, when I first got out and I went to college, I did in the back of my mind was like, if there's still stuff going on that needs to be taken care of when I'm done with college, I'll go OCS and then right. come back. Um, but by the time I had got out of college in 2013, we weren't in Iraq or like we were pulling out of Iraq. Like it was, it was really, and I was like, okay, I'm happy with what I'd done. Plus mm-hmm. I had, you know, gained the, the freshman 15 in college at 24. So I was like, I don't want to run that much anymore. And now I run marathons for fun. So like, I'm obviously crazy. You um, you. But, uh, <laughs> uh, you go back to school and yeah. uh, you take care of all your stuff. Now 
Um, when did you know you wanted to get into a role like what you're in now where you're specifically working with veterans? So even when I was in community college, my local community college over in Carroll County, mm-hmm. I was like, we don't have a veteran club my campus like i mean this is a small community college i get it but it's in a very part of the country where a lot of people have served in that county in that area maybe not right. people of my generation per se but it's a very sort of they feel the need to serve sort of area of the of maryland and i was really surprised there wasn't a like veteran club and i didn't start a veteran club but i got really involved like i was on student government i was you know a student ambassador which means i gave tours of the campus and stuff like that and so even as a student I was sort of the unofficial veteran ambassador to our campus Um, just because I was, you know, I knew the administration. I worked at the institution part-time as a student, um, did all of that. And then after I finished my community college and I was working, I was working on my bachelor's degree, I actually got hired part-time to work at my alma mater, my community college I just graduated from. And that's when really I started becoming like the veteran guy on campus. It was all unofficial for the longest time. So I eventually I did get hired full time as an admissions counselor working at this community college that I love. Uh, still love them. Even though I don't work there anymore, I still love that place. Uh, it's my first college experience and it was wonderful. And I was the unofficial veteran guy. And I just knew when I became the unofficial veteran guy, we started um, an SVA, Student Veterans of America Club, at that institution. I was the founding advisor for that institution. And we came up with, which I, I don't think I'm not the first one to say this. It's not trademarked by me, but we said vets for vets. And then we even went V for V. We would just, we'd see each other around other veterans and I go V for V and they just go V for V. And we would just say it like vets need to serve vets, right? We're in a better place. We understand the mindset. We have the experience, whatever it may be. If you're dealing with the VA, if you're dealing with, Chapter 31 benefits, VR&E, Chapter 33, anything like that. Vets need to help veterans. Your service isn't done uh, the day you take the uniform off. Right. We need to serve each other as, as a community. So that started pretty early on, and then eventually it became like my official job to become the veteran guy mm-hmm. um, or you know director of veteran uh, affairs at the other place. And then – I was lucky enough. I didn't wasn't even looking for a job. I loved my old uh, community college. I was in a master's program in higher education, and someone I went to, I was going to school with there. She goes, "Hey, you should go look at this job posting I just saw. It's for the director of the Bob Parsons Veteran Center. Bob Parsons being a Marine Corps veteran, he was the founder of GoDaddy, the U-Bald alum guy, right? Um, he's a Marine Corps veteran." He donated funds to create this amazing veteran center here. And they're like, there's an opening as a director. And I'm like almost done with my master's in higher ed. I got about 10 years of higher ed experience at this point, maybe nine. And I apply working only as a community college. I didn't even have my master's finished thinking I, well, I'll apply. I probably won't get it, but you know, what's the harm and go through the interview process and everything was able and was selected as uh, the new director, and that was about two years ago, and just, just love it. Just love what I do. I serve. Uh, we're a minority-serving institution, so I serve like mostly a, a minority population, which is underserved uh, in the veteran community. And just being as like an expert in veteran uh, education benefits and being able to help students 
go through that process, apply. If you're declined, this is what we need to do. This is the next step and help them go through that. Because at my community college, which I love, they didn't have anybody there to help me with those sort of benefits process. Right. I was using Montgomery GI Bill, not even post 9-11 when I first started, because I didn't know really what the big difference was. Sure. And I'm like, oh, it's whatever. I'll just do GI Montgomery. It's fine. No, it's not. You've got to use your chapter 33. Don't use chapter 30. That's ah. so I um I mean I love my time in service. And I still love that camaraderie that you feel with other service members, regardless mm-hmm. if you served in the t- same time frame or not. And it's just something that when I had the opportunity to do full time, like my job is to help veterans better themselves through education. It was something I was like, I, I have to do this. This is a passion I've always had. And they're going to pay me to do it. I can't believe it. It's amazing. Pretty impressive. Um, you know, you only spent uh, six years of your life in the military. Um, is there part of you that wishes that you had stayed longer? Funny enough, last night, I am putting my daughter to bed. And I have a 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment, like, hat. Like, real... Cowboy hat, right? Stetson. I know it's not what it's called. Calvary hat. Stetson, yeah. Right? I have a real one. Stetson, thank you. Uh, I know words. Stetson. Um, <laughs> it's, and it's hanging on my wall above uh, an NCO creed that's been, like, plaqued out and has a signature of my first sergeant at the time on there. And she's like, Daddy, what's that? And I'm like, well, that's my old Army hat. And she's like, why aren't you in the Army anymore? And I'm like, well, you know, uh, I got out of the Army, met your mom, had kids and stuff. And she's like... Well, if you were in the army, and then I said something like, if I was still in the army, I never would have met your mom and you wouldn't exist. And she goes, I'm glad you didn't join the army or didn't stay in the army. And then I think about like how happy I am with what I do now. And then like how happy I am with my wife of 10 years. And I have three kids, the twins, and I have a son who's two. And I'm just like, now it was probably the best decision I ever made at the time because it brought me to where I am now. Yeah. Is there pieces of the military that I miss? Yeah, I do. I miss like the the feeling of how important your mission is um, and how you can impact the world with what you do. Um, and also I was like, I'd only be a year from retirement. But I'm like, yeah, but how many knees would I have left? Zero? Like I don't like, you know, there's there you give up things. To do that life. Sacrifice is the, is the word, right? I mean, yeah. in more ways. Like, than would one. I have my degree? How many deployments would I end up having end up done? I don't know. Would you even be alive? Yeah. So um, I do I do think about it sometimes when, like, right before you go into to sleep at night. Like, what would it have been like if I was still, I don't know, First Sergeant Gufflin now or Command Sergeant Major Gufflin or whatever it would have been, right? But I'm, I go, no, I'm... I am happy with how I'm supporting my veteran community now. I'm very happy with the life that uh, you know God has provided for me and my wife and my kids and got family nearby. And I'm like, no, I'm very happy. Were your parents happy that you got out? Oh my gosh. Mark, my mom was so, so the first time I was blown up on my second deployment was like December 1st or something. And my my gunner, I got a concussion. I had like a bloody nose because we ran over a mine. And the front of the Humvee came up. My face just smacked the window in front of me. And yeah. I had like, it just hurt. 
And someone in rear D had called my mother and said I had a slight knee injury. Well, I didn't think it was a big deal. I didn't call my mom for like four or five more days. She thought I was in Germany, like missing part of my knee or my leg because she didn't know what a slight knee injury means to the <laughs> army. She was so mad at That's me funny. forever. She pro- I made me promise I'd call her more often. I was so mad at rear D. This is the first time in my life I think I told an LT to like F off, like whoever the rear D dude was. As a, I was so furious that someone had called my mother uh, and messed it up. Like I wasn't even right. the one with the knee injury. My gunner had a knee injury. I was so mad. And so, uh, like, to this day, uh, my mom still doesn't know the extent of the stuff I did, some of it, right? And she she just was so worried about me all the time because of what my mission consisted of. But she, my mother has four sons. There's me, and there's my brother, and then I have two son-in-laws. At one point, three of the four of us were all in Iraq at the same time. Wow. And so my mother had two daughter, her, both her daughter's son or husbands were in Iraq and I was in Iraq all at the same time. And then shortly after I get home, my brother goes to Afghanistan. So my mom, all of us, oh, there's one of us that are still in, he's an officer in the air force, one of my brother-in-law, but the rest of us are all out now. Um, and she's just so happy that because we have dinner like every we have family dinner every Sunday and we get to see each other. And she uh, is just so happy about having family close and not having to worry about us anymore. So my mom asked me several times after deployments if I was getting out. And I said, no one likes a quitter, ma. And, uh, 20, 20 <laughs> years later, I'm still in uniform. So there is that. Did you ever share any of this stuff? What happened with your old man thinking he would understand a little bit better? I shared my grandfather was a World War Two veteran. OK. Uh, he's but you, you known your dad had never actually seen combat though, right? Yeah. So I, so. before I shared stuff with my father, I actually shared stuff with my dad's dad, my grandfather right. about some of my combat experiences. Cause I knew he would, um, uh, relate to it more closely. Uh, but at this point I've shared, I've shared it with, I'm pretty open about my combat experience. Now there, there's might be people in my civilian world who are going to listen to this and, just like with me and Dario, have no idea about all this stuff I do because I'm pretty happy-go-lucky kind of class clown type guy in my regular day-to-day life. Uh, and they just aren't aware of some of the crazy things that I've uh, done in my past. So this, if they listen to this podcast, would probably surprise us. quite a oh, few good. of my civilian friends. And I'm glad you were able to share the story. I think, I think it's great. I mean, you know, um, it's, I'm always amazed sometimes, you know, and, and comparatively speaking on the show – you know, we've interviewed every single rank there is, every single position there is, some people who went on into politics and, you know, high levels of the Department of Defense and everything else and three and four-star generals and whatnot. And uh, I'm always, always amazed and impressed at, between the lower enlisted and the, and the junior NCOs, their ability to look at combat through such a different lens um, based off their experience, right? Like, we just had that conversation before about the positioning of where the leadership should be and why. And, and I'm sure that, you know, back while you were wearing a uniform, if your LT had said that to you and told you, I make the rules, whatever, you would have done it, but you probably would have been huffing and puffing that that guy's an idiot. He doesn't know what he's doing. You know, we need to do this. We need, but it's just a different prism and a different lens of experience that, that the way the story is related. And I, and I so appreciate 
the um, for lack of a better word, like the survival of the fittest mentality that lowest, like only the strong survive, I should say, that that the lower enlisted and junior NCOs have because they're lower on the totem pole. They, they worry about less, but they care about more, if that makes sense. Right? Um, it, it's it, it, They worry about everybody as far as... Uh, uh, I'm sorry, they care about everybody across the board because they're all soldiers and that's what they truly believe. But they have to worry about like less in, as far as responsibility is concerned. I just drive my home V, everything else is hunky-dory. But as soon as bad stuff happens... It's all my responsibility, you know, and it's it's just a different prism. So I certainly appreciate your point of view um, and, and the way you bring it to life. I, I think it's fantastic. Thank you, Mark. Really appreciate that. And I love the work you're doing now uh, in, in my old, I use the word stomping grounds again, my old stomping grounds of Baltimore, um, you know, University of Baltimore and getting more veterans back to school. It's such a daunting task for a lot of them. Um, they feel like they don't have any skills. They feel like, okay, this is all I know. And they're afraid to apply themselves to something that doesn't require a uniform and a 40-hour course and somebody giving you the task, conditions, and standards of everything um, <laughs> because it's what they have been brought up to believe. Uh, yeah. And some of that autonomy can be a little bit uh, unnerving to people. So I'm glad that you're doing what you're doing. Um, and I-, I know that you're on LinkedIn or whatever, so many veterans out there want to search for Josiah. Just have general questions. I know you'd be happy to answer them. Uh, about what what is available to uh, to vets as far as schooling is concerned, so I encourage people to reach out to you that way uh, and do it. But it, it's been an incredible story, brother, and I'm glad we're able to connect. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate you. I appreciate you, and I appreciate you having this podcast. Longtime listener, first time interviewee. <laughs> oh, well, that's good. I'm glad. So send us some more of your friends. Uh, I mean, maybe maybe your, your Marine buddy LT if he's still around. I'd love to hear uh, all the bad things he had to say about you behind your back. I think he's Major Harper now, so I'll see if I can find him. See see if he can find him. Uh, Appreciate everything. Josiah Guthlin, thank you so much for being part of the Hazard Ground. Thank you, Mark. You've been listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.